I do want to talk about something that is very, very important and um, why people are losing their faith. And it is happening. It, it's happening. It's been happening for years and it's going on now and it's a serious problem. And for those of you who are parents and grandparents and you have kids that are high school and that are going into college or around that age, um, this will especially be something that you'll want to, um, to pay attention to because the statistics are alarming and you want to make it so that your child, your grandchild, avoids becoming a statistic. And here's what I mean. Uh, 2011, the Barner Research, uh, David Kinneman wrote a book, uh, You Lost Me. And it the subtitle, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. And what they found was 59% of young people ages between 18 and 29 were walking away from the church and rethinking their faith, rethinking their faith. Rethinking their faith. Um, so why is this? Um, they provided six major reasons because they interviewed lots of people who were in this category and said, well, why are, you, why are you no longer going to church? You went to, and these were people who were involved in youth group during their high school years, okay? 59% of them were walking away from church. They were no longer going to church and they were rethinking whether they still wanted to be a Christian. Many of them leaving the faith, but Why? And they boil it down to six major reasons. And so I just want to go over them with you briefly tonight. Now, these six major reasons, I'm, I'm not saying the church is all at fault with these, or that we're at fault, or that you're at fault. I'm not passing fault onto anyone. I'm just giving these six major reasons, um, explaining them. So, number one, the parents um, overprotected their children. You know, we call them helicopter parents, right? And a helicopter parent, what is a helicopter parent? Well, you have Carolyn Deitch, um, and in her book, Anxiety Disorders, she defines a helicopter parent as this. It's a style of parents who are over-focused on their children. They typically take too much responsibility for their children's experiences, and specifically their successes or failures. Another uh, psychologist, um, and that's Anne Duenvold, uh, she just defines it as saying uh, parents who are, they're over-parenting. That's what being a helicopter parent is. It's over-parenting. It's just smothering your child, not allowing them to make the decisions and grow along the way. You're just overprotective of them. And here's what it results in. The child who's been overparented, who have had helicopter parents, they look for excitement outside of traditional boundaries. They're just so protected in that environment. They want to get out of that environment where they're just overprotected. They look at other faiths. They, they would say, well, all I've been given is the Christian worldview. How do I know the Christian worldview is correct? I don't want to be controlled in this sense. Um, there's that failure to launch, to get out of the home in that point. And a lot of times it's the parent's Failure to launch them. When you got a 25-year-old child living at home and they still don't know what they want to do, you got a problem. Start charging them rent. If you're not, you know, you might still be a helicopter parent at eight, you know. Um, so they're they're not getting out there. Um, I talked to co collegiate leaders, ministry leaders, and I'm 56, and, and these ministry leaders are younger than me. 
And they're saying that college-age students now have the maturity, they think, of where they were when they were high school students, when the college, today's college leader. Um, and and I, I see that as well. The college students that we have today, not all of them, of course, but if you just look generally speaking, they are a lot less mature than college students were of a few decades ago. Um, they've got a lot of self-doubt in some cases, well, at least when they have had helicopter parents. And there's a loss of creativity. You know, when you give a trophy to everyone, there's that lack of, of um, incentive to, to get out there and to do something to stand above others and to be successful. So that's one problem with the helicopter parents. That leads to people dropping out of church and rethinking their faith. Let me give you a second reason. The child is shallow, or the young, I shouldn't say child because we're talking 18 to 29. The young person is shallow. And there's two, shallow in two different ways. They're shallow spiritually, and many occasions that's because the church that they went to just didn't get out of the milk, teaching the milk. They didn't get into the meat. They didn't give a lot of good teaching and challenged people into maturity. So they were never able to get to that point where they could understand their faith and why they believed certain things, um, at least explain the things that they believe. So they went to a shallow church, so they have shallow spiritual lives. Another thing is they're just shallow, period, as individuals. They, um, in contrast to the young person who had helicopter parents, this person is way overconfident. They think far more highly of themselves than they should. And maybe their parents were saying along the lines, hey, you can do anything you want. And let's face it, you can't. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. I don't have the athletic ability to do that. In fact, I tried to play baseball when I was in high school. I always made the B team. You know, I didn't even make the school team. I always made the B team. And then I was second string on the B team. I mean, that's kind of embarrassing. Um, there's just things I can't, I can't do, I will never be able to do. I could never be a Navy SEAL. Um, and they just have this mental toughness. And it's not necessarily that people who are Navy SEALs that when they're trying out, they have this amazing athleticism. Yes, they're, they're pretty good, but they just have this mental toughness that I just never had. And some of the things, you just have to have natural abilities in certain areas, whether it's intellectual or, or physical, in order to do things. And um, like, I could never be a model. <laughs> um, so there's things that we just can't do, but some are just shallow. They think way more highly of themselves than they should. In fact, when they were doing research behind this book, um, they were talking to this, these young people, and they came across this one 17-year-old, and they were just this overconfidence, and they said to the 17-year-old, well, what are your life goals? And here's what the 17-year-old said. I don't know. I'm really good at a lot of things. I'm also really interested in a lot of things. You know, I'm thinking of starting a college. I feel I have a lot to teach others about many subjects. 17. So they have this overconfidence, okay? Let me give you another, repressive. Repressive. Now, I'm not saying that, they, that what I'm saying, they think that Christianity is a repressive religion, and it's usually because of the morals involved. They said, you know, you, know, you guys, you know, you think back, back in the 50s and the 60s, and there was 
Ricky and Lucy Ricardo. They even had separate beds. And uh, you guys can't even talk about LGBTs uh, at your church. In fact, it's just wrong. And you don't un, uh, you know, talk about whether a person could be born with certain same-sex inclinations. Or what about those rare cases where people have um, uh, sexual organs for both genders? And what do you do with things like this? And I mean, these, some of these are tough questions. And a lot of times the church just wants to ignore these things and not tackle them. And so they fault um, the church for that. They say, you guys are sexually repressive and you're, you're so rejecting. Uh, you won't accept the LGBTs and, and things like this. So again, I'm not saying right or wrong or any of these things. I'm just giving the six major reasons why they're walking away from church and rethinking their faith. Number four, anti-science. They think that Christianity goes against science. Um, you've got science and you've got religion, and they are in conflict with one another. And they have this impression that they're in conflict with one another. And of course, this is just simply um, mistaken. It's a misunderstanding. There we go. Um, and this misunderstanding, it's not a, just amongst young people, but it's among a lot of older people as well, even faculty members. There was some study done that was released in 2007 by the Institute for Jewish and Community Research by two Jewish researchers. Um, and they wanted to see the faculty bias against students. They were actually most interested to see if there was anti-Semitism against students. Um, what were the cool and unfavorable feelings toward Jewish students? And so what they did was they surveyed seven, or 1,269 faculty members, interviewed them from 712 colleges and universities across the United States. And they found, you know how many of these faculty members had unfavorable feelings toward Jews? 3%. They said, well, that's pretty good. That's not bad. You know how many, what percentage it was toward evangelical Christians? 53%. Want to know what it was against Muslims? Unfavorable feelings to Muslims? 33%. The unfavorable feelings toward evangelicals outdistanced everyone by a significant margin. These faculty members, and they found, these Jewish researchers found that there was discrimination and bias, outright bias against Christian students and even against faculty members, Christian faculty members who were being denied tenure because of the bias and discrimination against them. It, it happens. Um, so we have these things, and it's a lot of this, you, they see this conflict between science and religion. But this is a false dichotomy. Arno Penzias was one of the two Bell Lab scientists who in, I think it was 1964, discovered a blanket of thermo uh, or microwave, microwave radiation in the center of our universe. And from that point, the universe was expanding. And this was evidence that seems to confirm the Big Bang, that it happened a long time ago. Well, of course, when this evidence, and they won the Nobel Prize as a result, um, Penzias is, is not a Christian. Well, a lot would say, well, we know God didn't create. It was natural through the Big Bang. But then as science, they learn more and more and more about the universe. They, oh, the Big Bang actually seems to confirm creation. 
and Penzias, one of the two guys that discovered this radiation. Here's what he says. And remember, he's not a Christian. He says, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. Pretty cool. The Big Bang seems to confirm the creation event. And then you've got Francis Crick. He was an agnostic, bordering on atheism, and he was one of the two guys who discovered the DNA molecule. And not all scientists have seen DNA, but he has. He was one of the guys that discovered it. And here's what he said. He teamed up with um, um, uh, the late Carl Sagan, who was an atheist astronomer. And anyway, uh, Crick said this, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have to be satisfied to get it going. We say, well, how would Crick, who is an agnostic, who had discovered DNA, so if he can say it's so complex that it appears that it was a miracle to get things going, how does he explain the origin of life? So he and Sagan gets together. They estimated it's so improbable by natural causes, the chances given a four and a half billion year old Earth of life evolving by chance here on this earth is one chance in 10 to the two billion said power. Now that's just a number that's just inconceivable. If you said 10 to the second power, that's 100. 10 to the third power, you just add a, a zero for each of those. And that multiplies that number tenfold. So 10 to the fourth power, you just add one more zero. Now it's one chance in 10,000. So we're talking about a one followed by two billion zeros, each of those zeros multiplying the previous number tenfold. I mean, that's just inconceivable. You say, well, if that's the case, how do Crick and Sagan account for the existence of life on Earth? Well, they came up with a hypothesis called directed panspermia. And what directed panspermia said that uh, a few billion years ago, there was life on another planet, and they knew they were facing extinction. And so they built a spaceship to move that to a primitive Earth. But then they realized it would take too long to get to the Earth, and nobody could make the, the trip. So they wanted to preserve life, so they took bacteria, put it on the spaceship, sent the spaceship to Earth, it landed, let the bacteria off on Earth that uh, mated with our bacteria, and that's how we got life. And that's science. <laughs> because science, it says, this is a scientific hypothesis, but God, uh-uh, you can't even consider God. That's faith. Do you see how the dichotomy fails? Moreover, those who would want to say that science and religion aren't compatible or that science disproves religion, they really should consult a few of the leading scientists out there. For example, George Ellis of the University of, of Cape Town has been called um, knowing more about cosmology than anyone, including Stephen Hawking. 
And then you've got Christopher Isham of the Imperial College of Science and Technology in London, who is, in some, est some estimations, known as Britain's leading quantum cosmologist. That's a cosmologist who studies the cosmos, not a cosmetologist. Okay. And then you've got Francisco Ayala, who's one of the leading evolutionary biologists in the world. You have Alan Sandage, probably the greatest living astronomer today. You have um, Francis Collins, former head of the, oh, William Phillips, the Nobel Prize winner in physics, and Francis Collins, former head of the Human Genome Project. Now, you know what all of these scientists, these leading scientists have in common? They're Christians, and they see no conflict whatsoever between science and religion. Now, there, of course, there's conflicts between some scientific interpretations and religion, but there's no uh, conflict between science itself and religion. And we need to kind of pass, and impart, pass along and impart this information to our young folks. So it dispels this major reason why they're walking away from the church. A fifth reason is they say that Christianity is just too exclusive. It's, it's intolerant because they, Christians say that Jesus is the only way. You've got to be a Christian in order to get to heaven. Um, and that just seems intolerant. I mean, now I was on a campus, uh, I forgot what uh, university campus it was, but it, it was in Texas. It was one of the University of Texas campuses. And I gave a um, lecture on the resurrection of Jesus. And this one, I was, it was during a Q&A and a female student said, um, hey, don't you think that's kind of intolerant? I mean, you're saying Jesus rose from the dead and therefore we can know Christianity is true. But if you're saying Christianity is true, doesn't that mean other religions are false? And I said, yeah, sure. And she said, well, how would it, how would it make you feel if you learned or someone told you that what you believe is false? I said, ma'am, it happens all the time. <laughs> so I'm fine with that. And I gave the answer that my friend uh, Greg Coco gives. I said, look, I'm fine with that. I'm an adult. <laughs> so you, you've got these, you know, it's like you're being intolerant. Um, no, you know, truth matters here. Number six, doubt. Now, I don't know about you guys. Look, we're all different. We all have different idiosyncrasies. All of us have idiosyncrasies, but all of us have different ones. And one of mine is I'm a second guesser. I just second guess everything, everything. And um, I've been married uh, for 30 years, just a little over 30 years uh, to Debbie, wonderful woman. But for like the first 20 some years, it was like I doubted whether I married the right person. And it, it's not, it wasn't her, it's not you, it's me. Um, but it wasn't because of her. It was just, that's the way I am. It's the way I'm wired. Um, my first or second year in college, I remember I came home for Thanksgiving and my dad said, Mike, what my mom and dad, what do you want for Christmas? I said, I'd like to get a new watch this year for Christmas. What kind of watch do you want? I don't know. I just want a new watch. So my dad, over Thanksgiving break, he, this was back in the, it was probably 1979 or 1980, and you didn't have Amazon or anything back then. You barely even had malls. I don't even know if you had malls back then. Um, so he took me to downtown Baltimore, and there was this jewelry store down there, and um, he says, well, go ahead and pick a watch. Just make sure, it's, you know, keep it under 100 bucks or around 100 bucks or something. And so I'm looking around, and it got down to two watches. And 
I, I, it was almost impossible for me to choose the two. It probably took me 20 minutes. And even today, my wife doesn't like to go shopping with me. I mean, it's like, I, I, I hate that about me, okay? I just, but it's just one of those things. And if I'm going to second guess something as silly as a watch, well, I'm going to do that with something as important as my faith. And um, one, one way I've started to put it over the last year, look, I've really studied this thing. I've studied a lot of the different religions. Um, I'm, I, I want to follow the truth. Even if it pointed away from Christianity, I would want to give up Christianity and follow it because truth matters to me. And if another religion was true, I'd want to follow that religion. Why? Because it's eternity involved. I don't want to just stay with Christianity because that's the way I was raised. I want to believe the truth. If, if we really, if eternity could be in the balance, I want to know what the truth is. So, yeah, I've looked at this stuff. I've had 26 debates with atheists, agnostics, Muslims, etc., cetera, uh, public debates with this. I used to pray before these debates weeks, months in advance. God, if I'm wrong, please show me. I don't care if you have to humiliate me. I want to know and I want to follow truth. If eternity is on the line, this is really important to me. And the more I've debated atheists and non-believers on this, the more convinced I've become of the resurrection. They just don't have anything that's worthy, worthy of consideration um, in response to the resurrection. I don't think there are any good explanations other than the resurrection for the data. But the way I still doubt at times. Yes, I even still doubt at times. Why? And the way I like to start putting over this last year is, you know, here I got a, a, some, you got, the, this, this stage has some planks in it, okay? So here's one here, and it looks like it's three feet wide, and here's another one, and this, this is probably three and a half, four feet wide. So here you got, let's, let's call it seven feet from here to here. Now, if you said just stay on these planks, you can walk across the stage, no problem. I could walk backwards, I could jog backwards. I, I could promise you I can do some cartwheels on here, no problem. But if you took these planks seven feet wide, and stretch them across between two skyscrapers. I'm gonna worry. Now, I know I can walk across them, but I come out here to the edge and I look over and it's a thousand feet down. I'm gonna worry, why? I know I can do it, but what if I fall across? The consequences are too horrible to think about that I'm not gonna to wanna to walk across this. Even if you offered me a million dollars, I don't know that I'd walk across this between two skyscrapers. I know I could do it, but what if? The consequences are just too terrible. It's like I look at the evidence for Christianity, I'm, I'm pretty confident that Christianity is true, but what keeps me awake at night every once in a while is what if I'm wrong? And sometimes in, in churches, we don't understand people like me. Um, I, my dad, I loved him, but he never understood me in this way. And it caused great friction in our relationship. Well, not from my part, but from him. Um, it even canceled coming down and visiting us in, in Atlanta once for Christmas because it just bothered him so much that sometimes, uh, because one time I made the statement, well, I'm 80% certain that Christianity is true. That really bothered Well, you ought to be 100%. Well, Dad, you know, people are 100% certain that they're marrying the right person, and a few years later, they're divorced. Maybe they're not justified in having 100%. And, and this is just too important. So I think 80% is pretty good. It's enough for me to have faith and, and to, to, to continue to follow. I, you know, so I, sometimes it's a lot more than that, of course. But it's like, I, it's just the way some of us are wired. 
But then we come with the difficult questions to church leadership, the youth pastor or the pastor, so forth, and say, hey, you know, I'm wondering. I mean, I have one guy come up to me once. He says, I got a question for you. I went to the pastor of my church, and I said, if Jesus is God, why did he pray to God on the cross? And the pastor said to me, you shouldn't be asking those questions. So do you have an answer? I said, sure, I do. And we talked for a little bit. But it's those kind of things that makes it look like we don't have answers to these and that they aren't free to come with their difficult questions. Um, and so they feel rejected on that way. They feel that we are an anti-intellectual kind of religion. So these are the six major reasons why young adults are walking away from the church and rethinking their faith. Now, what's interesting, there are different solutions for these. So for the overprotected, those who have had helicopter parents, you know, they just need to learn some critical thinking skills to get out there, get independent, think, get some critical thinking skills. For the shallow, they just need to undergo some personal maturity, don't they? Get out in the real world and realize you don't get a trophy for everything. Um, if you don't perform well, you're not going to get a raise. Hey, you could perform well and still not get a raise. But if you don't perform well, not only will you not get a raise, you will be fired because there is a long line of people waiting for your job. So you better perform. And people don't care about your feelings in the workplace. They want performance. Repressive, well, sexually repressive with, with the moralities, they just have to learn to submit themselves to Christ. Um, and, and, and be counter to culture when it's time to do that. Um, Anti-intellectual, that they think it is, well, apologetics addresses that. Uh, the, Jesus is the only way you guys are intolerant and exclusive. Apologetics ex uh, uh, addresses that. You have doubts about your faith? Apologetics addresses that. What's really interesting about this is of the six major reasons why 59% of our young adults are walking away from the church and rethinking whether they want to remain Christians, half of them are addressed from Christian by Christian apologetics. That's pretty cool. And what I am excited about is Tim Stratton and Free Thinking Ministries. Tim, in the last two years, has gone from being a no-name to someone who is known around this country. I was in California last weekend speaking at a church out there in San Jose. And one of the guys said, hey, you know Tim Stratton, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, you watch his video. Or I watch his videos, he says. And man, he's great. Yep. I was in Florida, Sarasota a few weeks, uh, uh, about a month before that. Hey, you know Tim Stratton. Yep. I get sick of hearing his name. You know? So it's like it, I, I could go anywhere in the country. People are hearing about Tim Stratton after just two years. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, Tim is the real deal. He's brilliant, and he's got some really good resources. He's making videos. He's doing lectures around the country, and he's becoming well-known, all right, right here in your, in your backyard. And another reason is Tim has a fantastic board. I can tell you I've met his board members. We spent some time last night. They, they told me, Tim's told me, but they gave me details on how this board was and ministry was formed. Let me tell you, he's got one of the finest boards I've, I've ever known about. He is blessed to have this board. And this board has taken us, and it's, it's like they own this ministry. It's, it's not like they're just sitting on this board because it's 
prestigious to be a board member when it's like, hey, they're taking this, hey, let's make this thing count for the kingdom. And, and they're taking it seriously. And this thing's growing. And it's going to continue to grow because he's got this great board. And then you've got Tim is here. And you know what? We've got good Christian apologists all over this country. We've got them in Texas. We've got them on the West Coast, and especially in California. You've got Sean McDowell out there, Greg Kokel, Brent Kunkel, a, a number. I mean, I could just keep listing them over in California. J.P. Moreland, Craig Hazen, Clay Jones, all these guys, people that, that Tim studied under uh, at, uh, at Biola as well. And you come over to the East Coast. You've got William Lane Craig. You've got Frank Turk, Alex McFarland. You've got all these people on the East Coast that are just uh, Gary Habermas. I mean, just fantastic stuff in Texas. You've got Jerry Walls, Mary Jo Sharp, Nancy Piercy, Lee Strobel, uh, and, and all these kind. Mark Middleberg's in Colorado. He's probably, other than Tim, he's the only major apologist here in the, in the uh, Midwest. And you've got Tim, one of the major Christian apologists in the Midwest region, right here in Kearney, Nebraska. That's pretty cool. So uh, I would encourage you, if you're a church, invite him to come out and speak to your group. Use him while he's here until he grows too big and he's got to move somewhere where he can catch a plane because he's traveling so much he can live near a major airport. While he's here, utilize him because he's probably not going to be here forever. Well, this is a great ministry. Um, anyway, I'm going to take... Uh, questions from you guys in just a moment about apologetics and some of the things we talked about or anything else. But before we do, I want to ask those of you who are here and you're thinking, okay, I came, I know that you're, you guys are trying to raise funds. Um, so I just want to talk to you a minute. Again, I'm going to take questions not related to fundraising and all this, but I do want to talk to you who have means, okay? Um, because this ministry is important. And I'm, again, they just started two years ago. And they're getting 2,500 views every week. On their, they're reaching 10,000 people a month on just a shoestring budget. And they get more budget. They can reach even more people. They can promote things on social media. They can bring in some part-time workers and do some things. And, you know, Tim and Tia, they need, they need support. But what's really cool is they don't have all the overhead of a building and rent and all this stuff, everything that you give is going 100% into ministry activities. So you're not having all this waste and all stuff, not waste, I mean, but you know what I'm saying. It's all going purely into ministry efforts. And I, I tell you, even $25 a month can make a big difference. So I, I want you to just think for a moment, okay? And this is not a hard sell or anything, but there are some of you here who say, you know what, I can't give a whole lot, but I can give on a monthly basis. And what I want to ask, what I found helps with our ministry, I, I said to our donors, look, if you want to give, we would love for you to give and partner with us because we can't do it without your partnership. And look, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need Tim. But he uses each of us for our, our various gifts. And those like Tim, he is no more important in, in, in vital in the ministry as a person who gives $25 a month. Now, it'd be harder to replace Tim than it would be someone who gives $25 a month. But without enough of the $25, $50 a month people, Tim can't do what, he's going, what he needs to do. It's a team effort. And so 
What I encourage my donors to do, and what I would encourage you who are considering giving to Tim's ministry, is think about an, an amount right now that you, you could give to Free Thinking Ministries. You're 501c3, right? So, okay, so all the, he's, he's on the board and he's a CPA. All donations, tax deductibles, allowable by law. Okay, yes. Um, think of an amount that you could give on a monthly basis that you will not miss. Not a sacrificial given, but something you could give that you will not miss. There's a number that, that you know right now. You know what your budget is. What could you give that you won't miss every month? And the reason I say that is because Tim and Tia, they, you don't want to pay your rent just when the money comes in, right? <laughs> you want to be able to pay it every month or the mortgage every month. Well, they have to pay their mortgage every month. So something that you can give consistently every month, okay, that won't stretch you, but you can give comfortably. Think about that number. And if you want to give monthly, write that down on that card. And then some of you would say, well, I don't know if I want to be committed to it, but I know I, I could at least give once. I'm not saying I won't give in the future, but I, I'll give once to, to help out here and to build up kind of a, a reserve there. Now think about a number there that you could give and put that on, there's a card on your table. And you write that on that card so that they can get an idea, maybe at the end, give, give it to uh, Mike over here um, and on this middle table and just stick it on the table so that they can get an idea of maybe how, how much more funds they might be getting. And then there are some of you who have great means. You're able to cut a check for 10 grand. Um, that, that could mean a lot to Tim and Tia. That could mean a whole lot to this ministry. It may not be a lot for you, um, but it will mean a lot to that ministry. Some of you, you could, you could cut a check for $500 a month, and it means nothing to you. $500 a month will make a world of difference to this ministry. It really would. So think about what you, you could give. Think about what you could give comfortably. You don't have to decide tonight. But if you do have a number in your mind that you could give and, and, and you already have that number, write it on there and drop that card on that table where they can get it. Because this, this will help impact not only your community, but people all over the world. Again, they're reaching 10,000 people a month now. And that is going to grow exponentially if they get it enough funding that's going to really grow. And so your, your funds that you are giving to the kingdom can make a real difference. And that's about all I got to say on that. All right. How about some questions about apologetics and all this stuff? Left you speechless, huh? Comments? Yes. Do I have DVDs of the debates in which I've been engaged? Um, I used to have debate, uh, most of the debates on DVDs, but now everything is posted online. So you can go to my website, risenjesus.com, and most, almost all the debates are on my website. And they're posted on YouTube and Vimeo. Um, what's that? YouTube? What? Yeah. 
so that's where you can see my debates and a, a number of lectures and articles. I'd also like to, to uh, point you toward, oh, I think I turned it off, sorry about that. Ah, uh -huh. freethinkingministries.com, because um, Tim has a lot of resources on there. He's got videos, and he's got blogs and articles, and a lot of that can be very helpful to you as, as well. Any other questions, comments? Did you have one? Snide remarks? All right, so I got one minute to give a defense of the resurrection, okay? Um, I've, I've written a 700 and some page book on it. So if I were gonna give one, I would say, well, if an event actually occurred in the past, in theory, if we have enough data, we ought to be able to determine that it did. And so what are some of the data? Well, some facts are more strongly evidenced than others. So some facts, there are at minimum of three facts that virtually all scholars agree upon related to Jesus' fate. And when I say virtually all, they virtually all agree on these, whether they're Christian, liberal or conservative Christian, uh, agnostic Jewish atheists, uh, historians, and they agree that Jesus died by crucifixion, that shortly after his death, the number of his followers had experiences that they were persuaded were appearances of the risen Jesus to them, that these experiences occurred in both individual and in group settings, um, and there was at least one skeptic named Paul who was persecuting the church and he converted to become a Christian when he had an experience he believed he was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Again, that's not to say that it was the risen Jesus, because the atheists and agnostics and Jewish historians don't grant that, but they do grant that they had experiences they were convinced were the risen Jesus appearing to them. So historians, what they have to do then is they take these facts, historical bedrock, that virtually everyone agrees upon because the evidence for them is so good, and then you form hypotheses to explain these facts. And then the hypothesis that best accounts for these facts is regarded as what probably occurred. That's how history works. When I say regarded as what probably occurred, the reason you don't go further than that is because historians can't get into a time machine and return to the past and verify their conclusions. So there are varying degrees of probability or of historical certainty. So that's what um, you look at and you assess these hypotheses with how well they explain the facts. And when you do that, the resurrection hypothesis accounts for all those facts far better than any competing hypothesis. And therefore, the resurrection hypothesis is a description of what probably occurred. Now, maybe that's two minutes, but... Um, and then, of course, all that you can unpack. But, yeah, that's how I would argue in uh, one to two minutes about the resurrection. Why is it so hard to get the appropriate public credit? Well, it is generally accepted. That's not the conclusion, but...
Why isn't the conclusion? So why isn't Time Magazine coming out with this at Easter, right? Or why isn't seeing doing a special on the resurrection of Jesus and showing how the evidence really supports it? Oh, it gets very frustrating, you know. Or when they have uh, a program on there and most of the scholars they invite are skeptics, you know. Um, yeah, that, that gets really frustrating. Um, I, look, I, I recognize when Jesus says, don't be surprised that the world hates you because they hated me first because I exposed their evil deeds. And we are, I think everybody, it doesn't matter whether you're a progressive or a conservative politically or whatever, we, know, we all know there's a culture war going on in this country. And it's so polarizing. And Jesus is that polarizing figure as well. Um, I had a debate with an atheist philosopher at Ohio State University um, this past February at the end, end of the month. And it was, you know, he, he, was, he came out during the Q&A thing and he, and he said, look, basically this is important because Christians are having an impact on our society. The whole thing about same-sex marriage and everything, if it weren't for the Christians, there wouldn't really have been any kind of a push not to approve of same-sex marriage. So you think about it, if you're an atheist in this country, Christians are holding culture back, would be the view. Um, but, and I responded that way, and I said, and I said but if, if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity's true. And so it's not us holding the culture back from progressing forward, it's we're holding culture back from going off a moral cliff, is what we're doing. Um, because these things would be morally wrong, and we're stating this, and we realize that this is not popular. We realize that we're taking a countercultural view, and we realize that our culture isn't going to like us for this. And look, the news media, I think we all know the news media is, is, is quite biased against Christianity, the mainstream media, for the, for the most part. So I, I, I don't expect that this is going to be on there, but... That doesn't change the facts. Facts, as John Adams said, are stubborn things. Yes. Can I get in touch with someone at CNN in a top position? I mean... I don't know. I haven't tried. It's it's not my thing, you know. If they want to come to me, I'll I'll go on, but um, that's not my thing, you know. And I'm not going to talk about the moral issues. I, there are others like Frank Turek who does that and does a fantastic job. Uh, my area expert area of expertise has to do with the historicity of the resurrection and of the gospels and things. And if they want to have me on to talk about those things, I'd be happy to. They'll have Bart Ehrman on, Stephen Colbert have Ehrman on, and things like that. I'll go on a show if he invites me, but I don't want to push myself on that. Yes, sir. Hmm. 
And so the question is, what did I study in undergrad and what led me into apologetics and history and philosophy, things like that? <laughs> I was a music major in undergrad. I played saxophone. I was planning on being a professional musician. Um, and so when I went to grad school, by that time, I, I, I enrolled and got into a master's degree in New Testament um, on probation because my grades weren't that good in undergrad. And... Um, but I wanted to focus on New Testament Greek so I could read the New Testament in its original language. And I just aced all my Greek classes and did pretty well in my master's, my graduate work. But toward the end of that, I started to doubt my faith and have doubts and think, well, I was raised in a Christian family. I didn't have helicopter parents, but I, it's like I'm raised in a Christian family. It's the only thing I'd ever been exposed to. And I had been praying an hour to two hours a day for several years. I'd been reading the scriptures for an hour to two hours a day for several years. But then I got thinking, you know, I've got this confidence. I've got this relationship with Christ. But don't Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and people of other religions have the same kind of confidence? How do I know that what I believe is true rather than I've just convinced and brainwashed myself into this? And that led to doubts. And um, so I... Gary Habermas, I never had him for a class, but he was a professor there, and someone recommended that I go talk to him, and I, I did, and I went in his office, and he, he really helped me. And um, so then after I finished grad school, I went back to Baltimore home and, and got a job and stuff, and then I'd start sharing my faith with others, and then I'd get objections, and I didn't know how to answer them, and I'd call Gary Habermas. They didn't have email back then. So I'd call him, and he'd be, oh, it's Mike again, you know? And I mean, he was just... I'm a Christian today because of Gary Habermas. He saved my faith and worked with me through these periods of doubt. And um, so, I mean, he really helped. And that got me involved. But it was my constant. I, I needed to get answers. And I didn't want just pat answers. I hated pat answers. I needed authentic answers. It's, it's, look, I'm a picky eater. I'm a real picky. It, it, I hate that about myself, but I am. And... Um, when I was really young, I mean, I hardly ate anything. And it really frustrated my mom. And she said, well, what about all those starving people in Africa? And I said, I feel sorry for them. Let's pack up this food and send it over to them, you know? Um, but those kind of pat answers. Or back in the 70s, there was that famous poem from Jonathan Livingston Seagull that came out. If you love something, set it free. If it comes back to you, it's yours. If it doesn't, it never was, right? And I hated that because I never got the girl. So I came up with an alternative. If you love something, set it free. If it comes back to you, it's yours. If it doesn't, hunt it down and shoot it. You know, uh, just teasing, of course. But, um, um, but that's what got me involved. I needed authentic answers, and it just caused me to dig deeply. And, and when I did my PhD, um, look, when I was in grad school, writing a 20-page double-spaced paper with a few footnotes was a nightmare. When I did my doctoral dissertation, I was so obsessed with getting to the bottom line and answers, it ended up being more than 500 pages, single-spaced, and over 2,000 footnotes. It was four times the size of an average doctoral dissertation. Finally, my doctoral supervisor said, Mike, it's time to wrap this up. So um, that's what got me involved in apologetics. And that's why I debated, because I wanted to throw my ideas out there my case for the resurrection passed some of the brightest. I, I didn't go for the little people. I went for the tough guys out there, you know, the, the biggies, the respected scholars for the most part, to see what they would say. And as I debated them, my faith just increased.
Okay, so the question is that many will say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are earlier Gospels, and they're very similar, and um, they are regarded typically as being more historically reliable than the Gospel of John. Um, John presents things quite differently. John's later, um, and the Christology in John, the view of Jesus in John, seems to be a whole lot clearer that he's God, whereas they'll say, well, in Mark, it never says that Jesus is God, but in John, it does. So evolution, of, a theological evolution has taken place in between. To me, I think that's easy to, to, to answer. Um, I'm getting ready, and it's made an article for publication just now, and it's about did Jesus think he was God? And it's an expanded and... Um, uh, expanded version. If, if you want to see where it started, it started with a debate against uh, Yale New Testament scholar Dale Martin that happened in 2012 up in Canada. I debated him on did Jesus think he was God, and you can see that on my website, risenjesus.com, if you're interested. So, um, But in there, I, I talk about how, look, before any of the Gospels were written, you got Paul, and Paul clearly says Jesus is God. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, and uh, Romans chapter uh, 10, verses 9 and 13, where he attributes these things to, to God, to, to Jesus. And, all, you know, I, I talk about those things. But then I talk about Mark. When you understand Mark as an ancient biography and what ancient biographies did, I mean, it's really cool. Uh, it's, um, I, I just published a book on ancient biography and why there are differences in the Gospels. Um, and... I explained that in there. So the purpose of ancient biography is to illuminate the character. Plutarch talks about this in chapter one of his life of Alexander the Great. And so everything in a biography is to illuminate who that person is, the character is, and you know what kind of thing they're made of. And so when you keep that in mind, and you come to the Gospels, how does the Gospel of Mark start off? Um, as Isaiah the prophet said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God. Well, then it's not Jesus coming in to announce the path of God. It's John the Baptist coming in to announce Jesus. Well, what does that say from the very beginning about who Jesus is? That's chapter one. That's how it starts off. Chapter two, you've got Jesus who um, tells a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, and then he heals him. And the Jewish leaders say, well, you that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Yep. And then, you know, chapter three, you got Jesus sleeping in the boat when the waves are, are, are coming up. And um, he, they get him up and they say, don't you care? We're perishing. And he speaks the word and the wind and the waves stop. Well, the Old Testament says only God calms the waves. And then chapter four comes up. And then you've got, I think it's in chapter four where uh, Jesus is casting out demons, and they say, um, Satan is casting out Satan here. And Jesus says, well, how can that be? Because it's like a strong man who owns a house, and you want to break into his house. You've got to first bind the strong man, and then you can plunder all his house. And what Jesus is saying there is when he is doing exorcisms, he is binding Satan, and now he's plundering his kingdom. Well, what human binds Satan? And then in chapter 6, he walks on water. Well, Job chapter 9 says, only God walks on water. And on and on and on. Uh, that's 6. You get chapter 9. You get Jesus come down from the transfiguration. His disciples are trying to cast out a demon. They can't do it. Jesus comes up and speaks the word. The demon's gone. Later they say, why couldn't we do that? And he says, well, this guy only comes out by prayer. He didn't pray. 
You know, so it's all over the whole gospel of Mark. When you look at Jesus' deeds and what he's doing, he's doing stuff that only God can do. So Mark, when you read as an ancient biography through the lenses of what an ancient would look at, Mark is saying Jesus is God. Most scholars don't understand that, though, because they don't look at the genre of these things. So, I, you know, the Gospels are crystal clear on these things. But what John does, John paraphrases a lot. If we want to know the exact words of Jesus or the closest to it, you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, John, in some sense, is like the message version. Okay, so if you have a paraphrase, that's kind of what the Gospel of, of John is to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, what's cool is the author of John was an eyewitness. He was a disciple of Jesus, so it's still reliable stuff. But he's pretty much paraphrasing Jesus in these things and bringing out the theology of Jesus' statement clearer than what Matthew and Mark and Luke do. And when we understand that that is what John is doing, well, then he's not so problematic. He's just coming at it from a different angle. But we have to understand that. And as like N.T. Wright said several years ago, he, they asked him about the Gospel of John. He says, well, the Gospel of John is it's kind of like my wife. I, I, I love her, but I don't always understand her. And he says, sometimes the Gospel of John can be like that. Okay, great, great question. So he said, you know, myself, I had learning disabilities. I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. He said the same of Tim. I don't know if that's true of Tim, but it is true of me. And so what would I say, um, what would I recommend? To, what helped me to, to, to learn? What was it my passion for these things? And I'd say yes, um, for sure. Your passion for a subject can make up for a whole lot. And for me, I was struggling for my faith, which was the most important thing in the world. And it wasn't struggling to keep my faith. It was struggling to find out truth because I really wanted to know truth and follow it. And it's like, but I'm struggling as though I'm drowning because I realize that I may only have this life and one chance to get it right. And something so important, I wanted to get it right. So it, it meant wrestling with this big time. But it was a, a passion that just made me dig, dig, and dig. And, you know, when you've got that passion and a strong reason and motivation to get the answers, you can get those answers. And that passion and motivation can make up a lot for what raw intellect isn't there. So, yeah. And it, it's kind of like the tortoise and, and the hare, you know. I, I'm the tortoise. And a, a lot of the hares, they just... they. They give out along the way. It's easy, but it, you lack the challenge, and they it just they never make it to the finish line. But I had a passion for it. And Tim, is that, is that the way it is with you as well? So passion, strong reason, a motivation to to learn. Um, in terms of what I would recommend for study habits. Uh, uh, you know, for someone who's wanting to get into apologetics, well, it depends how much you want to get into it. You know, if someone wants to learn how to defend their faith on a relatively decent basis, then I'd say pick up Lee Strobel's books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for a Creator, The Case for the Real Jesus, or pick up William Lane Craig's book, On Guard. I mean, these are just excellent introductory level 
books and apologetics, they're fantastic. Um, or Frank Turek's book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Really good, you know, good stuff, good resources. Then you can go a little deeper into that. You have to read. I mean, you just have to read a lot on, on these books and you have to watch debates and things like that. It, it takes time, but you learn. And someone who has spent uh, up and go to really good foundation already in apologetics uh, foundation, I'd say take a step up and go to Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. It's a phenomenal book. And then you may want to specialize in a certain area. Like if it's on the resurrection, then get my big book on the resurrection. If, if it's on science, there's other stuff out there by Stephen Meyer and William Dembski and Philip Johnson and so many different people who cover the science stuff. So, yeah. Let's thank Mike Lacona. I don't know about you, but these nights, I don't want to go home when I start hearing Q&A sessions like this. Uh, we told you that we want to keep you all night, so we're going to officially end it now. But feel free to stick around and continue to talk with Mike and myself and my board members and, and mingle amongst yourselves. Uh, but I know it's a school night and some of you got to get home. So thank you for being here from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of the board. Thank you for being here. And uh, please stay in touch. Please get on Mike's website, risenjesus.com, and check out his stuff, buy his books, and, uh, and, and use his debates. And he's got quick, short little videos, too. When you know somebody that is struggling in their faith, I use his stuff all the time. And I'll say, hey, your doubt in Christianity is true. Check out this quick video. We try to do the same thing at Free Thinking Ministries. We want to equip and strengthen the faith of the believers within the church while lovingly challenging the blind faith of the atheists outside of the church. So thank you again for being here. Let me pray and I'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for how you're moving in the lives of, of people here in Kearney, Nebraska. And Lord, how you're moving and, and using men like Mike Lacona and, and so many others that are uh, striving to explain why Christianity is true. Lord, we see our culture going in a wrong direction right now. Lord, you have the words of life. And God, we want to communicate truth. And this is a different culture that we live in today. It's changed drastically in my lifetime. God, I pray that you would help everybody here speak truth, understand what they believe and why they believe it, and that you would help each one of us here lovingly share truth in this confused culture today. God, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives and that you would use each and every person here in a powerful way for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again, everybody.